we have a duty of care for, for many people that, you know, vulnerable people need housing. But, you know, we had this yesterday in council. People don't want houses built on their, you know, on their, you know, next door to them. They don't. I get it. I, we understand. But we can't afford to say, well, not in my backyard all the time. It really does irk me <laughs> because we're going to have to, we have to build houses. We need, you know, housing costs are exponential. 50 years ago, you could have, you could afford a car, you could afford a house, you could feed a family on one wage. Now, if people don't work and earn a certain amount, then you people are struggling to, to get a lot. Hello and welcome to the Amplify Stroud podcast. My name is Fraser and tonight I'm joined on a podcast by District Councillor George James, the Liberal Democrats, for our final instalment of our series leading up to the Masic local elections. George was first elected to his post as Councillor for Norton Under Edge Ward on May 2016 and has since gone on to become the Vice Chair of the Environment Committee alongside the Green Party's Simon Pickering. He has lectured in creative media production and film studies and is now the head of Department for Business and ICT at SGS College Stroud. As it happens, we have both spent some time studying at Oxford Brooks, so I'd like to welcome you to the podcast, George, and thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you very much. So um, I think we're going to kick it off by just kind of opening up. So would you like to describe the broad platform that the Liberal Democrats are running on for this district council election? The Liberal Dems have got a real decent chance here of taking control of Gloucestershire County Council. We have had 10 years or more now of, of Gloucestershire County Council sort of being run quite poorly by the Conservatives. And I feel that this time we've got a real decent chance. And I'd like to see, well, I said I'd like to see, I, I do believe genuinely that we, have, we offer a decent alternative to the Conservatives. And we have our six to fix, which are focused on highways, walking and cycling making sure we fix roads, more walking and cycling investments so we get we get people back onto public transport safely, especially post-COVID. We've got to focus on Gloucestershire's economy, which is basically the post-COVID recovery. I mean, we're going to have to invest in our communities. We're going to have to work with partners and in order to build back better, bring more sustainable jobs back into, the, into Gloucestershire. We've got some really great places that that's already sort of happened. If you consider right down in Barclay and in the, in the um, Barclay Green development, there's some really amazing things that are starting up in there. You know, that's where we've had Bloodhound based as well. So, I mean, things like that. There's amazing little things that are happening in Gloucestershire. This is a really vibrant place with so many different things going on. And that's going to have to be where the major recovery is going to be developed from. Then we've got health and social care. We've got to keep having a fully functioning A&E's. I think our, you know, our hospitals have done an amazing job. They've been nothing short of superheroes in what we, you know, in the during the pandemic. And we've got to maintain that all of our AEs, are both of our AEs, or all, all of our hospitals and community hospitals, you know, Stroud included. Stroud Hospital is an incredible place. I will fight tooth and nail for the maternity home, the maternity hospital in Stroud, because of the incredible job they've done. Both of my children were born there. I will fight for that with my dying breath, if I'm being honest with you. It's incredible the work that's needed done. Tackling the climate emergency. I mean, we've done that. We've stopped. We've declared a climate emergency here in Australia. And we're, you know, making sure that our policies are all moving towards climate neutral 2020. Children and families, fixing broken social services. I mean, I, I must admit, I don't necessarily trust the social services at the moment. They need to have more investment. Social workers do an incredible job. They are, you know, massively underpaid, but they need to have 
better infrastructure to support them because it's such a hard job, especially those ones who do some really horrible things. I say horrible things, deal with horrible cases in order to make things better. And then we're going to have to put our communities at the heart of decision making. And that one obviously is, as a Lib Dems, we like to have our communities leading things because we're not. there's no point developing things that aren't community focused. So those are our six defects and that's our rough platform we wanted to run on. So I hadn't realised that the Bloodhounds had moved to Barclay College. So is there an engineering facility down there then? The, it used the facilities at the UTC Barclay and the, it, it, was an, it is an engineering sort of focused area. So the UTCs, they, their, their education is 14 to 19. It's a slightly different sort of state, stage of education. It's, it's a little bit more nine to five, a little bit more vocational based, but there's a lot of engineering stuff that goes down there. It was a really wonderful thing to have had happen for the community because Bloodhound being such a you know the incredible sort of project trying to beat the land, world land speed record. So it, you know that's one of the major many things that have gone down. There's the Sabrina Center as well in the in the area, which is where the police do a, a number of their training and meetings. There's a number of other businesses built going into that area as well. So you know that's just one area of uh, you know development that we've got all going on in our county. Do you see kind of scope for a broader kind of industrial strategy you know that integrates education and vocational education in particular is that coupled with the west of england combined authority in some way what kind of um communication well yeah i mean these things are yeah i mean vocational education should be at the heart and soul of a number of different things that we do the problem is it's been treated like a third class citizen for many years i've worked in vocational education i've been a student in vocational education what can be done with some you know with, with some proper investment will absolutely be world, uh, you know, world beating. But at the moment, what we do is just basically work miracles with, with, with not a lot. The quality of what FE colleges turn out, and I'm not talking about just mine, I'm talking about all FE colleges in the county. We turn out some incredible students. We, we take them in, you know, they can be disengaged, disillusioned, and they become, you know, these incredibly skilled and talented human beings because they, they're able to just get to know their subject and they get to do something that they really love and enjoy. To be fair, I mean, there's, there's so much more that could be done there. In yeah. terms of industrial strategy, we could be talking about more apprenticeships, more investment in apprenticeships and better apprenticeships and more de- degree apprenticeships to really rival higher education and standard sort of education as a whole. In the area, Stroud District disproportionately held on to its engineering jobs during the deindustrialization of the past 30 years. Um, your ward, Wusson, has one of the large bases for Renishaw, right? And um, do you see the proposition for the sale of Renishaw as problematic, potentially, or a risk for jobs in that area? Yeah, I think there's an inherent risk in, in this. I would worry because of the major employment and the impact on employment it could have. I would hate to see Renishaw go downsize you know i will we'll, we obviously will be there to support as district councils will be there to support those around as best we possibly can and this one is what does the future hold depends on who the buyer is depends on what the buyer's vision is depends on you know how much investment they plan on putting into it are they going to change the outlook that you know they're going to just completely change the the, the philosophy of the, the the organization instead of engineering one thing are we going to be changing we need to change skill sets in that that's where your education vocational education plays a part because you will need to upskill people in order to be able to meet the demands of a new job will you commit to kind of opposing maybe a purchase or at least publicly coming out and opposing a purchase by someone who looks like they might be laying off quite a lot of the customers or out off off 
shoring any of the production? It's a difficult one to answer, and I'll be honest about that, because, I mean, I could say, yeah, I'd hate to see, I mean, I've said I would hate to see it go to a company that would want to go to it when it burned, but ultimately, if it's a private company that gets sold to another private company, I wonder what ability I would have to, you know, I could say, no, I don't like it, please don't change things. <laughs> I could ask, you know, I could meet with the new owners, ask them to, to make some promises, but will these promises be upheld? I don't want to say, absolutely, I'm going to, you know, fight tooth and nail for, for it not to be sold. Ultimately, if people end up losing their job, I will work with those people to see what we can do to support them. But there's other things that could be done. You know, we've had meetings with Renishaw before as a Lib Dem group. We'll see what what the future holds. What kind of strategies do you see for bringing more green businesses into the area? You said, you know, kind of touched on the build back better element of this green business um, is the future we need better investment in green jobs all organizations should be focusing on as you know being as green as possible they need to be training staff in order to make sure that they are able to you know if they're an engineering organization training our staff to be as efficient and, and as green as possible you know, the whole you know there's a lot of green energy research going on which you know, more money needs to be put in we've got one of the best you know Ecotricity, which is investing heavily, obviously, is just a green energy organization. And we need to be encouraging more of that, of other businesses as well. So it's ultimately, this is where we should be heading towards renewable. We need to be heading to sustainable. And without it, I think we are, well, that's climate emergency 101, really, isn't it? Oh, yeah. We're going to head to disaster if we do not tackle it. I mean, are we on track at this rate to achieve the council's goal of carbon neutrality by 2030? And are there going to have to be some serious changes in some of these businesses, right? I guess slightly more like Lib Dem approach of, you know, these are private businesses, you know, what they deal with is they're within some regulatory framework, you know, that, that that's their own. Yeah. I mean, there's going to have to be some heavy handed kind of interventions there, right? I mean, if, if we're going to hit carbon neutrality, by 2030 what do you think on that well the, the, the council's cn 2030 strategy is something i was really proud to be on the to, to, to put forward to the council it's a really great strategy that's the district council when it comes to again the market forces for the green businesses governments and councils are going to have to work with businesses in order to make sure they're moving towards a carbon neutral outlook i mean it, it needs to get to a point it needs to get to a point where it's no longer viable to not be green You know, that's been the interesting thing about, you know, we take America for many, many years. It's not been in their interest to make, to keep things green because there's been no tax incentive. There's been no, nothing going on. So when Obama introduced his um, carbon trade-off, he basically marketized the carbon neutrality. Basically, he said, look, you've got a certain number of carbon credit. If you stay green, you are able to sell your credits to another organization. So he basically taxed those who were not acting in a green manner, you know, not not a bit acting in a sustainable manner. So that's what you need to do. You need to put the pressure on. If it has to be a financial pressure, it has to be a tax pressure, great. Do what you need to do in order to ensure that our future is protected. We, we've got one planet and we are doing, we've done a decent job of wrecking it and we now need to fix it. In terms of kind of an actual strategy moving forward, I mean, one of the biggest elements of a carbon neutrality strategy and also one of the biggest areas of potential job growth and high quality job growth would be retrofitting houses and housing stock in the area. Do you have any policies that the Liberal Democrats are going to be putting forwards on that or, you know, that you're involved in on the Environment Committee at the moment? Yeah, that's an interesting one because I, 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 Simon and I have talked about retrofitting of houses. I've talked to retrofitting of houses with a number of local Lib Dems, and it is, you know, an easy place for us to start because, of, you know, simple things 
such as you know the retrofitting of houses, putting on you know photovoltaic cells onto houses, little things like that. The outlay it can be quite expensive, but the ultimate savings of where we need to be looking at as well. So that's more of a district matter in it, you know, for for its own housing stock. But it would be it is a good idea for us to be looking at how are we going to be saving energy of our houses, retrofitting the houses, making sure they're far more. Uh, energy efficient, saving energy, you know, ground source heat pumps, building our houses when we get have to build new housing stock, making sure that we're building in a green, sustainable way, using more sustainable materials. Would you personally back uh, kind of a, an increase in the amount of social housing stock in the area? Yeah, absolutely. We have a duty of care for, for many people that, you know, vulnerable people need housing. But, you know, we had this yesterday in council, people don't want houses built on their, you know, on their, you know, next door to them. They don't, I get it. I, we understand. But we can't afford to say, well, not in my backyard all the time. It really does irk me because we're going to have to, we have to build houses. We need, you know, housing costs are exponential. 50 years ago, you could have, you could afford a car, you could afford a house, you could feed a family on one wage. Now, if people don't work and they earn a certain amount, then you people are are struggling to to get a lot. Absolutely. Housing prices are ridiculous. And then as such, we need to do something about them. And social housing as well. So I like for the most vulnerable people in our district to have a place that they can call home. I think it's absolutely essential. I'm not sure if you saw this week, but Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, took a photo opportunity at the Old Ends Lane developments just outside of Stonehouse. And he was using this as an opportunity to promote the government's policy for a 5% deposit on a mortgage to supposedly help young people on low income get onto the property ladder and purchase their first home. We've done some research on that and the numbers look like you'll need a household income of over £50,000 and you'll need a deposit of over £12,000. How attainable is this for Stroud residents and the people they claim to help? And do you think this is a pitiful example of a, of a policy change that just papers over a deeper structural problem? The government's interventions with different mortgages helped to buy scheme, which was, you know, you have you put up a 5% mortgage and then the, the private company puts up the rest and it's basically a loan on top of what you own. It was a ridiculous idea. It managed to put people into houses which effectively gained negative equity quite quickly as well. So they had to stay put for a very long time. Schemes in order to help people buy, and especially what was that? You said £50,000 in, that was within the Stroud area. That was in the Stroud area, that was in Stroud District. Yeah, that, actually, which... yeah, that does not surprise me even in the slightest. When house hunting, as, many, as even as long as I did, I was looking at um, a place in Minch, and that was a too bad for an astronomical amount of money, which was way outside of my affordability at the time. So does 5% help? Not really. It won't help because actually... 5% is still a lot of money for some people. And if they are renting, because not all people want to live at home, get, getting £12,000 for a deposit is going to be difficult. So I was going to say, I don't really have an alternative right now. I mean, I, I'm not necessarily a mortgage expert. Are 100% mortgages a good idea? No, because we've seen what subprime mortgages can do if mismanaged and affordability is ignored. But right now, we need more houses and we need cheaper houses in order for people to be able to buy. You have supported on your Twitter page um, rent market caps or the, to at least lift the ban on rent market caps in Illinois. Uh, would you potentially see, I mean, Stroud has just been named the number one town by the Sunday Times to live in the UK. We'll go into this a little bit deeper in a minute, but it's not untenable that we see a future where we have astronomical rises in the price of renting and living in 
certainly in the Stroud town centre and in the villages in the surrounding area, making it much more difficult for people who've grown up in the area or would like to return to the area after some education to actually do this. And I think it contributes to a brain drain effect. It makes it harder to, to kind of rent and to build up your skills on the lower end of the income spectrum. And it makes it less tenable for people to set up their own enterprises when so much of their income is going to their rent and is going to their mortgage payments mm-hmm. if they're in that situation. Would you tenably support a rent cap in Stroud if you, if you saw rents rising? And there's absolutely benefit to it. I mean, you look at New York City and their rent-controlled apartments, which basically allow for people to live in areas. So you said it yourself. I mean, if people are spending so much on rent, then they're either going to do one of two things. One, they're going to end up not investing in, in their own futures, creating their own businesses, etc. But two, they'll do something else, which is leave. Because if people can't afford to live in the area that they wish to live in, they will either move to a place that's cheaper, i.e. Gloucester as an example, and they'll commute in. And that means one thing, they'll be driving more, there'll be, you know, there'll be more cars on the road, they'll be spending more time away from things, quality of life plus. So yeah, I think there's there is a an argument to be made for rent caps because it will then allow for the affordability for people to live in an area. It's unfair for people to do for rents to be so high and for people some people who wish to set up home and set up life in a village, in a town that they have grown up in. I would agree there has to be some consideration for it. Now we've touched on that. Um, I mean, I think it's very clear to people who live and spend time in work in the town centre how quickly things are changing. A Financial Times article published at the end of last summer detailed the South Gloucestershire housing market as uh, seeing an increase in demand of over 70% since the beginning of lockdown for house purchases and it seems to kind of imply that shipping Camden is the kind of future of Stroud. And it says this, obviously, in, in, a, in very positive tones, uh, recommending property investors and second house buyers from London to look towards the Stroud Valleys, which are much better value for money. This dynamic is obviously going to continue and most likely accelerate on the back of the Sunday Times article I previously mentioned. And on top of that, we're also seeing other dynamics going on in the town centre. We have just had the Five Valley Shopping Centre finished. It's all about padded out now. And, you know, they, it was about £12 million of investment. £4 million of that came from the public purse. £1 million was a loan. £3 million was a grant from Gloucester, Gloucester LEP, Local Enterprise Partnership, which is not controlled by any of local government, but by central government, of course. And this has obviously come with a plethora of different effects. We can't exactly plot how this will pan out, but it looks like the kind of jobs being created inside of the centre directly through the Five Valley Shopping Centre subsidiary of Transfield Properties and by the businesses in there seem to be low or minimum wage jobs. And on top of this, the only other source of money coming into the area truly is through business rates or to the businesses renting in there or to Transfield Properties as they've set up in Stroud. It relies otherwise on local business owners um, setting up in the area, which a very small portion of the actual uh, business businesses set up in there are. I mean, more than average, but low compared to the rest of Stroud. The square footage, uh, rental prices, I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I had a look at their price sheets and they were over two to three times as expensive to rent in the Five Valley Shopping Centre per square foot than it was the average kind of commercial property in Stroud. This all kind of points towards a dynamic of, you know, higher rent extraction, lower labour share of value created. And for small business owners, they're even taking home a smaller percentage 
of the value created through commerce in the Five Valley Shopping Centre. There have also been rumours that the Imperial Hotel is being eyed up by the owners of the centre. Stroud Civic Society have opposed this and I've been tipped off that there is potentially a group of community business owners trying to save this as a community asset, which was uh, is one of the most architecturally important buildings in the town centre, according to Tim Mars of the Stroud Civic Society. It was designed by the architects of the Woodchester Mansion and it, it's not currently listed or graded so um, the idea is that towards the end of this, we see a process where the town centre is being bought up by a kind of external property developer and landlords, and we see it transformed before us. The housing is all luxury apartments, as it was dubbed upstairs in the kind of promotional material. And the jobs are generally low-paying retail and hospitality jobs. Is this the kind of future we want for Stroud, and is this what we should be spending our public money on? We need to encourage people to pay the living wage. Just start with that bit, shall we? Because, yeah, I mean, minimum wage is all very well and good, but actually does it really cover the cost of living? No. Let's do that. Again, we could argue market forces would say this is, you know, unfortunately people only pay what they pay because of market forces. I get that. I truly do. Do I like it? Hell no. The centre needs to regeneration, but we mustn't forget about all of the other market towns we've got going on. We don't want to just drag away um, people to be, you know, this area to be just stride-centric. This is not just about stride. This is about Woodland Road, it's about Dursley, it's about Nailsworth. All of these towns have got charms and things that are different and need, you know, they need nurturing and they need support for. What I don't want to see from the firefighters is the loss of some of the, should we say, more down-to-earth shops. We'll take that to be read as things like home bargains, Wilco's. I mean, they are bread and butter shops. They're people, what people really need to go to. And they're not exactly costly shops. I and mean, I don't get me wrong, I like the look of Sanderson's, but probably not quite to my taste, if I'm being honest with you. I love Armadelli. Been around there, bought a couple of things um, before. They do a really decent gluten-free um, haggis. I'll make a recommendation. But let's not detract from what's going on here. We don't want to pull shops away from Stroud. Through the pandemic, we've had a, a shift in people's buying behaviours. You know, people were already buying quite a lot online, but the pandemic has forced that in people's hands a little bit more. So you know, that's happening more and more. Shopping has become experiential. You know, Stroud has now got to become more experiential in order to support those needs for people. We don't want to have a, a high street that dies off. We have to have the investment, and sometimes that investment does come from private companies. But again, we mustn't allow people to, to, to drive forward just through quote-unquote market forces to drive down costs, have high rents and drive down wages. That's unacceptable. That's unfair. Especially when I also the investment, I would say, on but you know the stated purpose of this investment by Gloucestershire Local Enterprise Partnership was to develop high quality jobs with upward mobility as an option there, and you know it's specifically earmarked to encourage high paying jobs. You know they invested to a tune of over thirty percent of the development costs at this property. You know only one quarter of that needs to be paid back. Let's just think about you know really just ask the big question: Who sets up jobs? Who should be starting their own businesses why would people want to start up their own businesses even i'm too old to be the sort of person who really wants to go set their own business don't get me wrong i'd love to but at the same time we need to be encouraging young people to be setting up and starting their own businesses in all of our market because they're going to be the ones that are going to be there for many many years we need to make it easier for people to start businesses we need to make rents affordable for people to start their own businesses and to then encourage them to stay what we don't want to happen is a business somewhat tries to start up and absolutely tanks because effectively Rents have been too high, business rates have been too high, and basically through a, a series of different sort of circumstances, it's just un, 
untenable or unviable for a person to run a business. I've got a couple of accounts from an employee, uh, one from an employee who'd worked directly for the Five Valley Shopping Centre and one from a previous client and tenant at the Five Valley Shopping Centre. So the employee described the conditions that they worked in as highly pressured from, from management with responsibilities of job changing day to day, which eventually resulted in much of the long-standing workforce of Mary Walks leaving, which I think has a parallel with the leaving of the, the bread and butter businesses and, you know, less plus businesses from the shopping centre. These complaints were echoed by a previous tenant who claims that they've been strong-armed out of the shopping centre for not fitting the plush and clinical image the directors had in mind, arriving one morning to find their locks on the shutters changed before the end of their tenancy, and an email detailing an exclusion zone for them and their employees. Um, they've since found other premises in Strouds and have printed a line of merchandise with the shape of the exclusion zone on the back of the coat. The question that we're tasked with asking is this the kind of future that our town wants and is this where we should be investing public money? Um, we as a paper take a, an approach that kind of favours community wealth building and community asset-based development approaches. We are going to write at length about this in the coming month or so. But the general approach that we see is this investment is not necessarily, you know, leading to the kind of development we want in the area. You know, there's a shrinking labour share of the value created. And, you know, the people that really benefit the people who are saving elsewhere, we'd like to see the kind of businesses that are going to save in the area that are also going to save in part with credit unions in the area and reinvest some of this money to build up these kind of grassroots institutions and build resilience across the society. So I don't know what your views are on some of those comments I've made. I've supported the investment from the council many years ago when we when it came to full council to do. I, I supported because I felt it's the right thing to do. Take Mary walked as of old. It wasn't a glamorous place that doesn't necessarily make it a bad place it just, but it was it wasn't moving anywhere it wasn't going any it wasn't doing anything shops were leaving but they weren't returning when Argos moved that was kind of like a river death now really because there was no draw for people to go down there so it's important to have those changes made we can't stay still sometimes we can all, I, I can sit here and i can tell you it's done with the best intentions and you know we don't want to know the road to hell was paid with good intentions however we couldn't leave things as they were I will maintain that I feel I was in the right position to do it. If there are questions to be asked and that need to be answered, they need to be asked. Those questions should be asked and they need to be answered and they need to be answered honestly. You know, I'd be very interested to see what your investigative research actually draws from this. Um, the second part was a touch on the kind of policies we'd like to see. So, I mean, um, generally lines up with the precedent model or the Wirral model, you know, the contracting of work out of these kind of businesses, if they're going to be receiving public money to local businesses, still with competitive tender, but if there is a local business, they should be considered and, you know, they should be employing with local people and the way they manage their wealth should have some kind of, you know, some, some kind of attachments to that, you know, not just necessarily say, or investing you know out of the area but trying to build wealth in the community yeah we need to be investing more there needs to be huge investment in community i love social enterprises i love what the social enterprises do in fact oh gosh i mean i mean i could go on a whole rant about why they're amazing but i will keep it very short and sweet there's been so many wonderful things that Stroud as a community does and i say Stroud, but actually that's just big Stroud, wooden nailsworth dursley and all of those areas there are people who are so invested in their invest their time in little shop communities social enterprises that give back I, I, I think we need to be encouraging and allowing for more in entrepreneurship through those areas as well. But, uh, you know, we take other really successful businesses in Stroud as well. Loose, for example, I think is a really great example. Like they're moving to a new premise, actually. 
those are the heart and soul of what Stroud are really about. And they're really in keeping with the, 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 the feel of what this whole district is about because it's that sustainable efficacy that, that really happens to be very focused on a better future for all. So on, on the level of the Gloucestershire County Council, do you think that over the last seating of the council, do you think the contract, you know, the contracting of the incinerator project <laughs> out to the company that it went to in the end was at all a desirable outcome for the district, the county? And do you think that the community-based competition uh, offered a good alternative at all? What's your view on this? I mean, my, my view on the incinerator is it's horrible, but I mean, it's a really difficult one. Ultimately, we've got you know as a district we have that we we uh, we have the collection rights and we have to send it to the nearest site to get rid of. We are still sending far too many recyclers in black bins into the incinerator, which is ultimately you know, we're talking about plastics, which we might do stuff. All of our collection services, and that means you know all of the district councils need to be told you need to get more of those recyclers out of the black bin waste, sort it so that we are you know what we what we have left is a real a real minimum. The question then comes down to what the hell do we do with it? Because ultimately, do we bury it or do we burn it? And we not, neither is a desirable outcome. We do need really to have far less waste. We do need to have far less rubbish going in there, fewer plastics in general. But we, st I still think that you know ultimately that we are, it is the devil in the deep blue thing with the incinerator, but not the the contracting of it was questionable. It seems. The, the information was hidden for four years. Nigel Robbins of the, the Audit Committee of Gloucestershire County Council queried this, and they've been trying to investigate it for four odd years. I mean, that's just not good enough. So there still needs to be questions asked here as well. If you're not going to be upfront with something, there's something you know you're clearly giving leaving us with some questions that we want answered as to the awarding of this contract. Was it right? Was it fair? We've got a press release from Community R4C, the competitor bid for a, from a community-based um, enterprise from the 25th of March this year. Mm -hmm. It's claiming that the you know the county audit chief blames Javelin Park and query delay on the kind of cover-up by the council leaders. I mean, what do you think of that? There, there, there are questions that need to be uh, answered here, that, and that'll that, be through the court. <laughs> and that'll be through the court hearing, will it? Well, well, we'll see. I mean, it's becoming a protracted legal battle, and the only but people that are winning right now are the lawyers. I would like to see a proper answer. And it would be great if it would come rather than having a protracted legal battle to just have some honest, yeah, we've, yeah. we've rewarded it incorrectly. Or, okay, yeah, we didn't do it right, let's do it properly and just have the whole process done properly. I'm going to take that kind of a segue from the legal cases here and uh, ask a kind of a more local question about the Liberal Democrats. So in 2017, the Stroud Trinity by-election, Steve Deacon ran against the Labour Party on an anti-Brexit platform, winning a town council seat. He defected to the Tory party less than nine months after his election and campaigned for a hard Brexit from the right of the Conservative Party. It has later transpired that he has been in the national news as the Good Law Project have uncovered the very dodgy or at least, you know, there's a judicial review process underway into whether the tendering of those contracts was legal and was it lawful. His loss-making company of uh, £400,000 a year won over £270 million of COVID contracts. 
do you think that voters in Stroud can trust the Liberal Democrats to vet their candidates properly? We're talking about a green bulwark, this the Stroud Trinity seat. It had never gone for, to a party outside the Greens or the Liberal Democrats in modern election history. And then we have a hard, Tory, hard Brexit Tory who'd run on a kind of pro-Remain stance in the town centre. How can we trust you moving forwards? Um. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming from anywhere, does it? Ouch. Um, you can trust the vetting process. You can. Um, the Liberal Democrats are, are, you know, no party is perfect, but let me just put it in a, a simple way. Steve's reasons for leaving the Lib Dems and going to the Tories were Steve's reasons. His politics changed? Who knows? I don't know. I, I couldn't quite say. I don't think it has anything to do with our vetting process. I don't think it has. People defect from parties all the time. They move from one, one alliance to the other. This happened in the council on a number of occasions. We've had people go from conservatives to independent. We've had uh, Labour to Green, for example. Is it a but, question but no, of... no one campaigned on a Remain ticket and went to a kind of hard Brexit ticket. I mean, this was obviously a cleavage point at the time, and mm-hmm. I mean, this was this was a really this was a really serious defection at the time, right? Well, I would say it was. Yeah, it's a serious defection. But don't forget, he also said that part of his reasons for leaving the Lib Dems was to fight uh, the hard left of David Drew and Jeremy Corbyn. So you know, again, there was a num- number of different reasons that he'd stated as to why he'd left. Those were his reasons. I, I'm not going to sort of speak for him on those reasons. And whether they were whatever if he meant them or not i don't know in terms of the people that we've got standing the vetting process is in place that we have to go through i would hope that all of them if, if we've all got elected that we wouldn't move you know move away from being lib dems i mean but again it happens yeah, sadly it happens all the time i think yeah. in, in politics people leave i get that what you're saying the sort of the the juxtaposition of the lib dems at the time were a very pro-remain party versus you know the, the hard brexit the conservatives and he moved that way but yeah those were and uh, did you still have close do you still have a close personal relationship steve no i uh, we haven't spoken for gosh a very very long time do you think that his you know his receipt of the COVID contracts. Do you think it raises alarm bells? I think I think all I think I'm not going to target Steve on this one particularly, but I think all the, the awarding of COVID contracts need to start. They need to have an investigative process. I get the need for urgency because we needed PPE. I get the need for making things happen. But I mean, what was it in the, the press today? James Dyson and um, Boris Johnson talking about changing rules and expediting certain things. Well. I think if there's not uh, an inquiry in the future about this, then there's a big problem going on. Okay. Going to move on to racism now. So the Seal report was published this year, um, declaring that there is no institutional racism in the UK. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. No, I mean, um, do you think do you think this is true or do you think this is bollocks? Uh, bollocks. I, I get the steel report, fine, okay, but unfortunately, there is problems because there are so many people saying, "Oh, well, you're you're arguing Black Lives Matter." Well, all lives matter. Well, of course, all lives matter. But until Black lives matter in the same way, forget it. Then all lives don't matter. All lives do matter. Yes, good, well done, big clap. So why are we still treating half the people, you know, half the population in you know, is second class? unacceptable no it's bollocks do you see any kind of uh, policies that the district council or the county council can be taking over this next council term to combat institutional racism and does your candidate for police crime commissioner if you have fielded one we have um 
common. It's common. Yeah. Yeah. What do I say about that? I mean, yes. Yeah, so I mean, we need to be making sure that everything we do is done in a way that it opens opportunities for every single person. The Lib Dems are an inherently anti anti racist party. We do not we do not like racism. We we have rejected candidates on on a national level for things that they have said in the past, and that will be that how we will maintain our philosophy. We you know this is for you know we are for everybody. We color, race, breed, religion. If you if anybody starts making any policy or any conversation that that denigrates any human being, it's just despicable in my view. Obviously, it was uh, it was almost uh, tokenized in a sense in that same Sunday Times article um, I referenced alluded to earlier as a kind of reason to move to the area. You know, Stroud's kind of uh, anti-racist credentials. But I mean, um, obviously, you know, th- there's a history of um, kind of a you know anti-slavery in some sense, but also like of a kind of uh, of colonial kind of expropriation and you know slavery in the area and there's been a contemporary history of racism all the way up until today you know i come from a migrant background personally you know my my father immigrated here from lebanon um after the civil war and you know i mean i can you know i can't count on both hands how many how many instances you know he faced um personally and you know I, i i know that that is true for other people who from across the Gloucestershire constituency and specifically for black friends that I had growing up, the systematic systematic disadvantages that they received within the school body, outside of school, between uh, peer groups even. So, I mean, um, from your perspective on on the education side of things, do you see that in the education system and how do you you kind of combat that within the education system? I mean, to be fair, I mean, it comes down to the education within our PSHE sort of agendas all the time. And so, you know, teachers will work constantly to challenge and to explain sort of talk about unconscious bias that's that's a relatively more recent addition to a lot of the training that we, we do as teachers but also then the teaching that we have to push put towards the students as well it's a difficult one because there are always going to be people who have this idea of us versus them you know and you are fighting against some very very ingrained rather detestable view all we can do as teachers and we will continue to do this. All the teachers I work with, all the teachers I know, and I know a hell of a lot of them, will always work to challenge and will always work to seek to, ex- you know, to show that all human beings are, are just that. We're all the damn same. And work towards to educate people to do the same. Don't get me wrong, we don't always come up trumps and we don't always win these arguments. But Did you support the BLM actions over the last summer? I agreed with taking the knee. I agreed with those those marches that took place. Yeah, I I have held some rather unpopular opinions about the removal of the statue of Edward um, Colston. Edward Colston. Colston. Edward Colston. Yeah, that was it. You know, I mean, from my understanding, really, there's he's rather a historically insignificant figure. The only reason why he he has a statue is because he gave a hell of a lot of money to Bristol because he wanted to make sure that his reputation was rather nice. Well, great, brilliant. I mean, but he wasn't, so, you know, the removal of a statue just because, you know, isn't that big a deal. You know, it, it, you can move it to somewhere that has historically contextualised. This is a statue of Edward, Edward Colston, by the way. He sold 20,000 people uh, into slavery, and that's how he made his money. Give people the opportunity in which to do that. I mean, the problem with, with Ed, the statue of Edward Colston is that it was hamstrung by politics. I mean, ultimately, politicians said, well, this is bad, we need to change it. And everyone went, yeah, okay. And then they spent years arguing about what to do with it instead of actually having some you know, determined actual action. And that's the thing. I mean, if we're going to, if you want to 
change people's minds. You actually have to do something about it. You do something positive. Brilliant. And um, yeah, I think it's best summed up for me um, by a Bristolian who said, we spent years going through the proper channels and after that didn't work, we just stuck them in a proper channel. So, um, <laughs> which was uh, one response to the events. I'm going to move into some of the candidate questions. So Stephen Davies asked you, what difference do the Lib Dems make in coalition at Stroud District Council? It's interesting, isn't it? I thought that would be an interesting question that someone would know Stephen Davies would go for. They like they like to paint us as a rainbow alliance. What difference does the alliance make? Let's just not individualise one party on I mean, that's ridiculous. As a group, we have done a lot together. You know, Ken and I, we're only two Lib Dems, but our voices are heard. They're listened to by Doreen O'Connell, leader of the, the, the Labour group. They were listened to by Martin Whiteside, leader of the Green group. We share ideas, we discuss. It's bloody grown-up politics. Asking what difference does two people make on it, it's just bloody childish. Yeah, thank you for that. And um, Doina um, has asked you, from Doina's the leader of the council and the leader of the Labour Party in Stroud District Council, I believe. In your view, what are the biggest challenges facing the district in the next few years? To quote a famous Labour leader, education, education, education. Frankly, if you want to solve any, any problem whatsoever, you want to solve inequality, education, better education, better investment, education. If you want to solve unemployment, education, better education, more education. 49% of men in prison can't reach a level two level. I mean, that is a stat that sticks with me regularly. It makes me sick because ultimately it's just a cycle of poverty and it's just a cycle of the crime coming back and going round and round and round. So priority for county, definitely education. Priority for district, allowing people to use that education in a way that's going to help them better than their, their own lives. Thank you for that. And the allusion to Tony Blair's quote, education, 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 which came to define the early Blair years there. Thank you. Um, and we're going to move on to Molly Scott Cato's question now. Are you concerned about the threats to democracy in the UK? And what would you do to change to make um, sure that we restore and enhance our democracy? Well, absolutely. I think democracy is a living creature. I mean, it ultimately, it needs nurture, it needs care, and it needs love and it needs honesty i mean it's 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 the one you know the one thing in politics more than anything is if you go back on your word if you lie you will be punished for it as a lib dem i know that better than probably most people you know ultimately truth needs to to, to act there can be gerrymandering of politics in a number of different ways you change the boundaries you make them you know you you look for you know where the data sort of lies for different parties and you can then start to target things how do we address the balance well Ultimately, we need to change the voting system. You know, I, I would argue that we should favour a system so similar to what we had in the European politics, in the European Parliament, where you have to have an area and then you apportion percentages to people because it means people's votes will matter more and they will feel far more engaged. You know, whether you like it, um, Reform UK's or whatever the Brexit party's view, they, someone felt the need to, to, to vote for them and they wanted their voice to be heard. Right now, we don't have our voice to be heard. You can get elected on less than 50% of the vote, and that happens so often these days. I think it's a rarity that you get an MP who's elected on more, you know, on more than 50% of the vote. And it's a problem because it means that you can gerrymander things in a lot easier way. And so when, when parties start to talk to each other, when start, parties start to say, well, well, let's think about tactical voting, people say, well, that's just not democratic. It's like, 
right now it's not no you're probably right but it's the only way we're going to move towards something that looks like actual democracy these days people hide behind these arguments oh it won't be a stable government it leads to more coalition here's a secret for for people 2010 to 2015 was a damn good government. I mean, okay, don't get me wrong, it, it was still Tory-led, and there were still some things that I found difficult to, to swallow. But at least there was a, a, a second voice there going, this is important and this is what we should do. That's where you had the legalisation of homosexual marriage. It's an amazing thing to have had happen. I mean, did you, at the time, um, you know, obviously there were large social policy successes during the coalition years. I mean, um, did, oh, did you did you as well? Of course, yeah, there were many failures during those years. And so, I mean, uh, do, do you think the austerity of those years, in a sense, led, led to Brexit? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's kind of like answering the question, when did, the, when did it what started the Second World War, the First World War? Yeah, I mean, arguably, I do think there were so many disaffected people from those years. But I think it goes back. I don't think it was just, you know, I don't think it was, it, you could... Of course, like, we can go, we can go further back. But I mean, um, in a sense, I mean, the, the social... It was one of the ingredients. ...were yeah, uh, aggravators. Yeah. Um, yeah, did, you, did you support the kind of um, the austerity policies of that government at the time? Wasn't a, wasn't a huge fan of them. But I mean, ultimately, what, you know, we've, we had two options, didn't we? We had the Keynesian politics, invest in... In, the, in society and, and, invest, and invest and invest and invest and sort of create the jobs that way in order to sort of invest your way out of it or you go for for trimming the fat and we won't be trimming the fat not not a great thing to go for is it i mean i'm not a huge fan was not a huge fan of austerity it hurt a lot of people i don't think we can argue it was a raging success i don't think we can argue it was a it was a total and utter failure I think some questions again need to be asked and answered about those those periods. Of, I think the Lib Dems have spent some time actually been able to sort of review their, their position and were able to do so. Did I support them? I can't really answer that because I mean ultimately I I sort of thought they were a bit crap but potentially necessary. No, it's just good to know your view on that one. Thanks for answering that. I'm going to come for our final question today uh, to wrap up with, and this is from us at Amplify Stroud. Um, What's your favourite pub in the Stroud area? And what is your favourite pint? Oh, you see, this is a really difficult one. Okay. You see, the thing is, there's like some really great pubs in Wooden, okay? And the shit is a lovely, lovely, lovely pub. Great atmosphere. And I used to, when I was um, a little, I say little, 18, I used to drink in the Britannia in, in Nailsworth. That was a great pub to go to. I like the Ale House. That was a really nice one. That's a great pub. And what do you order in those pubs? I can't drink beer. It makes me poorly. Uh, it's a gluten thing. So it, um, it actually is G&T. You see, the thing is, if you'd ask me what my favourite drink is, generally, I'll talk your ear off about whiskey. It'll take me about a year, but I don't drink whiskey in pubs because I don't drink whiskey in pubs because it's a, it's a different atmosphere. Okay, brilliant. No, I think, yeah, we'll have, to, we'll have to take some time to talk about that at length on our, on our food and drinks episode of the show. Until then, um, yeah, I, I guess that's it for today. So thank you, George. And that wraps up our election coverage for this season. Yeah, I'd like to thank you on behalf of the viewers and the rest of the team. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Amplify FM. If you enjoyed what you heard, you can subscribe to the podcast and find our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. Also, feel free to check out our content on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and of course, at amplifystroud.com.